Happy Easter. For me, this is like the fourth quarter of game seven because we build up all year towards Easter and this is like the last moment of it for us. We had Friday service, we had that wonderful picnic yesterday, we had sunrise service this morning, Sunday school, and now our 11 o'clock worship service. So I'm running off of pure coffee right now. So you're going to get a lot of energy from me this morning, all right? Um, we're so glad to have you guys. If you're a visitor, my name is Luke Gradeless. I have the great honor of being one of the pastors here at Harmony Baptist Church, along with Brother Joe Canales, who's sitting right there. Uh, we're so glad that you've come to worship with us today. Today is a day where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. I was telling everybody this morning, it's kind of one of those funny things because the reality is we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord every single day. Uh, it shouldn't just be one Sunday a year that we remember what He did for us and that we focus on that sacrifice. It should be every single day of our lives that that sacrifice is changing who we are, how we live, and what we do. Uh, I have on the screen here behind me is a picture of Christ the Redeemer, which is a famous statue in Brazil. Is everybody familiar with this statue? Have you seen pictures of it before? Um, it's an amazing, amazing statue. Uh, and one, and, and just the beauty of it in itself, to the magnitude of it. It's so unbelievably huge. And it's unbelievably cool when you see it from different angles because at some angles you see it and it's just Christ on this background of these green hills and mountains. And then in other views, it's Christ looking over this unbelievably populated city. And it kind of gives you that sense of Christ is everywhere. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is present in all places, all times, all shapes, and all forms. There's one thing, though, about this statue that just doesn't ring true. And it's right there underneath Jesus' uh, face. You see right on his chest they have a heart. And when you think about Christ, the one thing that's always gotten me about this statue is thinking about in any way, shape, or form his heart being made of stone. That's just not the Christ we know. The Christ we know is not a Christ who has a hardened heart. He is a Lord and a person who has one of the biggest, most compassionate and powerful hearts that we've ever seen. We obviously like the statue here at Harmony Baptist Church as it looks like our logo, if you haven't noticed that before. But there's something about this statue that's always been kind of personal to me. And what I mean by that is it has a significance whenever I see it that makes me think about just lots of people in general. There are a lot of people that that right there represents their Christ. They have this picture of this magnificent, unbelievable, larger-than-life Savior who is welcoming them. But He is cold, He is impersonal, and they don't know Him. Even in this country that we live in today, still majority of Americans will say that they believe in God. They will say that they believe that there is a higher power. And many today will still even argue you with some kind of nonsense like, well, you know what, I think Jesus was a good guy. I think he was a great teacher. I think he was unbelievably wise. I think he had some great philosophical points. It's when you start getting to things like, well, do you believe he was the Son of God? Do you believe that He was perfect and without sin? Do you not only believe those things, but have those things led to you having a relationship with Him where He is not only your Savior, but He is your Lord? See, brothers and sisters, a lot of us, we have confused Christianity into making it a belief system. We act like as a religion, if I believe the right things, that means that I will be in the right position in my relationship with God and that one day... 
when I die, which I really don't want to have happen, I will then get to stand before the Lord and he'll go, eh, yeah, you believed in my philosophy. You followed my rules for the most part. I guess you're in. That's not how it works at all. The point of this is not for you to meet Christ, adopt some new way of life, live by a certain set of rules and code of conduct so that you earn brownie points so that eventually when you die, which let's all admit is the last thing any of us want to have happen, you then somehow get into some place you don't even really know a lot about. Now let's be real. Most of us, the reason we want to go to heaven is not what we know about it, just we know it's not hell. We just know it's better than the other place. The other place the description we get is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we go, ah, that doesn't sound like my thing. If there's only two options, I'll go to the other place. And so we look at this book, and we look at it as a, a bunch of rules. We look at it as a way of life. And we do our best to keep enough of them that we feel good about ourselves. All of that is a relationship with a Christ like that. Christianity is not about rules. It's not about religion. It's not even about a way of life. It's about an all-consuming relationship with an unbelievable, immeasurable, beyond words, awesome God. It is about a relationship so intimate, so powerful, so beyond the words of anything you could ever describe that it changes every breath you ever take. That's what Christianity is. The rules that God gives us are just guidelines. They're just guardrails to help you and I stay on a path that leads to Him. But if we miss that, we miss what this whole thing is about. Not about a way of life. It's about a life-changing relationship. I don't want you guys to have a picture of Christ that's so big that you can't walk up to it and talk to it. The beauty of Christ is, is while He is the one that has defeated death, that has washed away sin, that has given us redemption and righteousness, He is also the one that we can walk up to, that we can call brother, that we can hug, that we can cry with, that we can laugh with, that we can share life with. And when we make Him something so far away from us, we miss the relationship that He died for. Brothers and sisters, He didn't die on that cross just so you'd glorify His name. He died on that cross so that you could become part of His family. Amen. He died on that cross so that you, like Him, could look up at God Almighty and no longer in just pure fear say the name Yahweh. But now with an intimacy and a love, you could look up to heaven and go, Dad, and talk to God as your Father. That is what He desired. See, there's a confusing thing that we have to get right in our heads. And it comes all the way from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Some people read this and what they interpret is, we are all children of God. Because every single one of us was made by Him. But let's be real here. Is that logic sound? Is everything that you make human? No. In fact, for me, it's only two things in my life I've ever made that are human. At least I hope they're human. 
<laughs> Everything else I have made is unbelievably not human. Just because we were made in the likeness and the image of God does not mean at that point that we were His children. All this means is that you and I are creatures created by God. Amen. That is it. There's a different step that has to be taken by you and I in conscious decision to not just simply be His creatures anymore, but to be His children. To be those that not simply want to know Him as a Creator or as a one-time Savior, but that want to know Him every single day as our Lord. See, what I sometimes don't like about Easter is everybody's okay with the Easter story. No one, no one really finds it offensive that someone loves them so much that they would die for them. That's, that's great. And most of us would go, I'd love to have someone who's willing to die for me. That's not where we have problems. Where we have problems is not with the Savior part. It's with the word Lord. We have problems with that idea that we're in a relationship with a God where each and every day it is not I that wakes up pursuing my will, but rather it is a God who is showing me His. And I, in submission, in joy, in humility, pursue His path, not my own. We want to be more than just God's creatures. We want to do more than just know that God exists. Look at Romans 1.20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, guys, the evidence for God is literally everywhere around you. Everywhere. And what's great about our world is human beings just keep learning. And despite what some people will tell you, all the things we learn, do you know what they point to? An intelligent creator. Everywhere you look. It's funny, I hear so many people who say, well, science proves that God doesn't exist. Please show me what science you're looking at. Because as of to this point, thousands of years in, guess what we still can't explain? Life. We still can't explain life. We don't know how it's created. We don't know where it comes from. And frankly, the best thing that we can just use to describe the beginning of the universe is, is that all the matter in the world at one point was in a singular place and then a force of nature greater than the laws of nature and a burst of light created everything. I'm like, man, that sounds like a book I know. It sounds like Genesis chapter 1. And that's what science will tell you. Do you realize every single scientist would agree that a miracle is anything that they can't prove how it happened? Right now in this room, there's 60 miracles. Because science can't for the life of them explain how you went from inanimate cells to living. No one can explain that. Miracles are all around us. So why do I share this with you? I share it with you because too many of us have settled for mediocrity. Too many of you have settled to just be a creature of God's. Too many of you have settled for just believing that He exists. Guys, those are the table stakes. Pretending that you're enlightened because you acknowledge God made you and that a God exists is nothing. The 
game changer is understanding that the one that created you desires a loving relationship with you. And brothers and sisters, that's what makes this whole thing work. Let me just make it real easy for you. If you have no desire to be in a personal relationship with God, just stop reading the Bible, stop coming to church, and stop trying to live by that book. Because it will be futile. All it will be is rules that won't be fun, and that all you will ever find is that you're not able to live up to that standard. And you will continually find in yourself an emptiness. Now granted, most of you who don't know Christ probably already know that emptiness well. Because in this world, we constantly are driving and trying to fill ourselves with other things. Maybe it's money, maybe it's popularity, maybe it's beauty, maybe it's sex, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's alcohol. Who knows what it is? For some of us, it's sports. But we find these things to try to fill our lives with, hoping that they will give us significance. Hoping that they will give us meaning. Hoping they will give us purpose. Hoping that they will get rid of that thing that makes you lay awake at night wondering, why am I here? What's my purpose? So if all you want is a way of life, you don't need this. But if you're looking for a life-changing relationship, if you're looking for a love that makes all other loves look like nothing, then you're in the right place. I want you to think about what Christ did for you. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 45. We find ourselves at that final moments of Christ. You know, as I get older, the harder these passages are for me to read. I have to be honest, as a kid, you hear about Jesus dying for you so much, you almost become desensitized to it. You hear about the cross, you hear about he died, you hear about how he was ridiculed, but then you know he rose three days later. As I get older and I read these words, I, the pain that he must have gone through for me sets in. And my prayer is, is as we read this, we don't just glance over it, but that we really take to heart what he was doing for us in that moment. It says in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sakbathani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's funny as you read that part, that's probably the saddest part of the entire story. Throughout this entire day that Jesus has gone through, he's been beaten, he's been tortured, he's been ridiculed, he's been spit on. He's gone through unbelievable physical pain. But you know what we haven't heard at all from him? It's him crying out. Not once do we hear of him begging for them to stop. Not once do we hear of a cry of pain. Not once do we hear anything that senses that he feels the weight of this until this moment. And what's powerful about it is it's not from physical pain. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where the pain comes for Christ is in that final moment. 
all the weight of all of our sin and all the sin of every man and woman that has ever lived falls upon the shoulders of Christ. And for the first moment in his entire life, he is separated from God. All the beatings, all the torture, all the hurt, all the physical pain, and he never cries out. It's not until he's distanced from his father that he cries. It tells you something about the beauty of that relationship. It tells you about the power of that connection to God the Father. Jesus could withstand anything as long as he had his Father right there with him. It wasn't until he was disconnected from that that all of a sudden the pain came flying through. See, brothers and sisters, you and I, we miss this sometimes. Sometimes what we do is we only go to God when we have run out of our own ideas. A problem comes and what do we do? We go, I got this. Let's figure this out. Let me strategize. Let me plan. Let me use my talents and my abilities and my money and my friends and everything I have to figure out a solution. And only after we've hit the brick wall once, twice, three times and we're out of options, we go, I guess I'll pray. Hey God, have you seen this thing that's happening? You got any... Can you make this work for me? It's not the way it's supposed to work. See, what Christ did was every single moment He relied on His Father. He didn't go to His Father last. He went to Him first. And the moment that relationship was broken, He felt empty. See, you and I, we miss something. You were handcrafted by God. And your fuel source is Him. You are meant to run off a relationship with God. You are meant to glorify Him on a regular basis. You are meant to be directly connected to Him. And the moment you don't have that fuel coming into your life, guess what happens? You run out of gas. Now you know what you and I do? We try to fill ourselves up with other things. But you know how well that works? If you want a great illustration, go take your car and fill it up with diesel fuel today. And let me know how your week goes. You put the wrong fuel into a machine and it won't run anymore. It doesn't work right. And you and I, that's what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to fill ourselves with other things. And what Jesus shows us, even in this pain, is got to be connected to the right source. What our sins do is what they did to Jesus here. Our sins, God doesn't punish us for our sins. The reason He hates our sins is because our sins separate us from Him. That's why He hates them so much. God didn't give you rules in this book because He goes, you know what, you guys are having too much fun. You know what, we need to cut that out. You know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it really hard to follow me. And only those people who are really disciplined will get into heaven. That wasn't the game plan. He goes, don't do these things because when you do them, you'll find yourself far away from me. And because I made you, when you find yourself far from me, it will hurt. You'll be empty. You'll be lost. Don't do that. Eli, Eli, lama sakbathani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What an environment to have your last breath in. Not only are people cheering your death, but they're almost treating it like a game. Should we give them a little relief? Well, no, let's wait and see. Maybe another miracle's coming. Maybe there's going to be something cool that happens right before he dies. You sense the unbelievable lack of compassion from these people. There's an important thing for you and I to realize about this. I, I realized as a, when I became a pastor, as I read some of these verses, you know what I have a tendency to do? I read Bible stories and assume I'm the good guy in it. Ever do that? Ever read a story and you assume, like, well, I wouldn't be the Pharisee. I'd be, like, standing next to Jesus going, yeah, those Pharisees are terrible. But the older I get, you know, the more I realize this, I'm the Pharisee. The older I get, the more I realize, like, I would be the bad guy in the story. And there's some of us goes, oh, well, that's not true. I would never sit here as Jesus was dying and ignore it. Guys, we do it every day. Realize every single day of your life you live in a resurrected state. Every single day of your life you live in the truth that there was a Savior who loved you so much that He was willing to take the penalty of your sins, put them on His shoulders, and He was willing to die to wipe those clean for you. Not only did He pay that price, but then He poured His righteousness on top of you. So from that moment forward, God the Father would no longer see your sin, but only see you as His child. How awesome is that? How amazing is that? Yet let's be real. How many days a week do you forget all of that? I'll be real. There's not 40 hours a week where I remember this truth. There's absolutely days of my week and hours of my day that I am not living like that's real. How do you forget something like that? This kind of love is the kind of love that should shake us and change us. There's a couple things about this death. First is, it is love. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. I know this is strange to us in America because we've lied to ourselves through songs, movies, all kinds of junk that love is this amazing feeling. It's just a wonderful, amazing, fire-filled, passion-filled feeling. And you just know it, right? You have your little meet-cute with somebody, you bump into them, and all of a sudden you're in love, and you know that's the person you need to be with. Love is not a feeling, guys. Love is an action. It is the joyful sacrifice for the good of someone else. Love is the joyful sacrifice for the good of someone else. That's what love is. And to be honest, it's way better than a feeling. Feelings, they come and they go. But joyful sacrifice, that changes the world. Christ got on that cross not because He was forced, but because He wanted to. Christ endured that death not because He had to, but because He wanted to. Why? He knew it was either you or Him. And He loved us so much that He said, I'll take that place. How amazing is that? 
Now here's the coolest part. Besides Jesus having this unbelievable love and this ability to sacrifice for us in such a profound way, the coolest part about Jesus is He's not like you and me. See, it'd be awesome enough if you just had a human being in your life who would be willing to sacrifice for you. In fact, most of the time we meet people like that, we either marry them or they become our best friends for our lives. Because it's rare. It's rare to find those people that will sacrifice to the point of death for you. But the beauty of Christ is, is not only is He willing to do that, but He's not flawed. He's not weak. When He sacrifices Himself, He does it in perfection, and He does it with immeasurable power. In 1 John 3.5 we hear this, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. See, the reason you and I die is because we've sinned. Sin equals death. That's how simple it is. Well, Christ, He never had to die because there was no sin in Him. None at all. He could have lived forever. He chose to die for you and me, but because He was the perfect Son of God, when He died, it didn't take. When He died, death met a force immeasurably more powerful than itself. And because of that, we're celebrating what we celebrate today. Flip to Luke 24 with me. In Luke 24, verses 1-12, through 12, we read about that Easter Sunday morning. It says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, and as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you that he, this while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified. And on the third day, rise. Man, I love those angels. I love that they look at his followers and go, why are you looking for the living among the dead? What's so amazing about Christ is, is so often he tells us things over and over and over and over again. But you know what you and I do? We forget them. Go throughout the New Testament. You know what Jesus was regularly telling his people? I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to wake up. Like, just repeatedly, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to wake up. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to wake up. Hey guys, by the way, if I haven't mentioned it, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to wake up. And then what's amazing about them is, he dies, and all of them are like, it's over. He's gone. He'll never be back. And what I even love is, they show up three days later, and they're like, somebody robbed the tomb. It doesn't even click for them three days later. Like, wait a minute. I think he said something about this. But you know what I love about it? Is it's so real to life. Raise your hand if you're a parent. Have you had this conversation with your children before? 27 times you've told them something. And yet they'll look at you when it finally happens and go like, why didn't you tell me about this? I mean, like, clue me in next time, guys. And you're like, hello, I've been talking about this for two years. 
Oh, really? I didn't stick with me. We're just little children. And Father warned us this was going to happen, but we just didn't pay attention. But I love how those angels go, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Here's the reality of Christianity. We're the statues. We were hand-molded by God out of the dirt of this ground, and He breathed His life into us. And in that, we were given a shape that looked like God. But we were not part of His family yet. We had some of the features, we had some of the characteristics, we had some of the likeness, but there was an emptiness to us. There was a hardness of our heart. What happened Easter Sunday is the life that Christ contained, a life force beyond anything and everything else, was unleashed to its fullest extent. We saw the power of that life was such that even when it ran straight into death, it won. Death could not contain Him. And from that moment forth, that life began to overflow, not just to Him, but to each and every person that would say they belonged to Him. What happened from that point forward was us cold-hearted statues got the opportunity to turn alive. We got the opportunity to experience real life. See, brothers and sisters, everywhere you look within the pages of Scripture, God doesn't point to heaven. Jesus doesn't scream about following rules. Do you know what He talks about? He talks about life. And He talks about it in such a way that it makes what you're experiencing before Him not even really count as being alive. Look throughout these verses. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. The Latin for that word eternal is so profound. It doesn't just mean long duration. It means of immense quality. The picture that God is saying is, is when you come to me, the life I give just isn't a long one. It's an amazing one. And I think that's a really important distinction. Because a long bad life is no fun. If you're miserable every day of your life and I go, hey, want to live another hundred years? You're probably going to go, no thank you. It was funny, I was part of a study the other day and they were talking about how the first person has already been born who will live to 150 years old. Now what's funny is I was in a room full of executives who are much older than me and uh, a couple of the guys who were in their 60s and 70s were like, that's got to be painful. I mean, I would not want to live to 150. Already half my body's fake replacement parts. I can't even imagine what it'd be like at 150. And so to me, there's an importance in that word that not only is he talking about duration, he's talking about quality of life. He came to give us life. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Life and they have it abundantly. You know what's funny about the things the world you chase after in, in, in this world? You never get them in abundance. You notice that? Like you never have enough money. You never have enough popularity. You never have enough fame. You never have enough good looks. Like even those guys who like work out at the gym trying to get that perfectly sculpted body, kind of like mine. Um, those people. That, that wasn't a joke, guys. That's not funny. 
Those people never look in the mirror and go, done. They never finish a rep and look in the mirror and go, this is it. This is the perfect state. There's always more. There's always more. There's always more. Have you ever collected something? When you collect something, have you ever noticed like it becomes this insatiable hunger to have the next one? And you know what I found with a lot of people who collect things? One of the saddest days of their life is when they complete the collection. They almost sometimes assess it like, now what? We don't have things in abundance. And what Christ says is, come to me, and I will give you a life where no longer you sit there going, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. In fact, when you come to me, I will give you so much, you will go, I don't know what to do with all this. In fact, I have so much, I need to go share it with others. My cup overflows to an extent that just everywhere I go, life spills out. That's the picture he's trying to give us. Look at John 6, 34, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Man, what a feeling that is. What a feeling it is to look at something in your life and realize, I don't need any more of this or less of it. In this place, I am not lacking. I have everything and everything more than I could have ever imagined. You know what's beautiful is you can tell we were wired by God. Because the only time you ever even remotely close to feel things like this is in relationships. The only other time I've ever felt this besides God is looking at my family. When I look at my boys, I don't go, eh, they fill me up kind of. Might need a few more of them. You know, I, I, don't, I don't feel a lacking there. When I look at them, I go, man, that is awesome. They fill me completely. Sometimes they fill me to the point where I feel like I'm going to burst. But we are made to run off relationships. This is a really bad analogy, but because we're in San Antonio, you'll probably understand it. You guys are the ones that fill yourselves up at the Mexican restaurant on tortilla chips. <laughs> you eat three or four bowls, you wipe out all the salsa, and then you're like, I'm full. And the main course comes, and you can't eat any of it. And then you go home, and in 30 minutes, you're like, I'm hungry. <laughs> it's because you didn't eat real food. You filled yourself up on junk, and your body's going, this isn't what I run off of. It's all that God is trying to say. He's trying to say, hey, I made you. I handcrafted you. I built you. Do you know what you run on? Me. Stop going to other stuff. Stop going to other places. Come to me. And I will fill you with everything and more that you have ever dreamt of. See, brothers and sisters, there's a hard thing being a preacher. Part of my job is to teach you. Part of my job is to take you through that word and explain its logic and its wisdom and all the wonders that are in it. But the hard part is, is the coolest part of it, I can't explain to you in words. There are no words to describe it. It's a relationship. It's an experience. Knowledge may get you interested in going down that road, but it's not until you come face to face with Christ. It's not until you look upon Him. It's not until you hear His voice. It's not until you fall on your knees and go, Father, that you
you will ever understand what this book is about. Don't miss what Christ did for you. Don't miss what He's trying to give you. It's not a religion. It's not a way of life. It's not a code of conduct. It's not a philosophy. It is a powerful, life-changing relationship. And the moment you experience it, it literally changes every second from that moment on. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. John 14, 6. My favorite. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Basically what Christ is screaming to you is, if you don't have Him, you don't even know what life is. You're in some mediocre rip-off that kind of looks like life, but is nowhere even remotely close to it. Brothers and sisters, you've chased enough stupid stuff. You've chased enough things that this world has to know they lead you nowhere good. Chase after the right thing. Go down the way and you will find the life. It won't always be easy. You won't always understand it. But you will never regret it. And in your heart and in your soul, you will always know that you are exactly where God wants you to be. He died on that cross not just to wipe away your sins, but so that He could call you brother and sister. So that you, like Him, could fall upon your knees, look up at heaven, and say, Hi, Dad. That's what He's given you. What a glorious and wonderful thing it is to be a part of the family of God. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come forward with me. I'm going to ask Brother James to stand in the back. And I'm going to ask you all to stand with us. And we're just going to take a moment of time to pray and to sing. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you. I believe there's some people in this room you know about Christ, but you don't know Him. If that's you, take time to talk to Him. Take time to have a conversation with your Father. And I guarantee you, if you do that with an open heart, He will talk back. If there's anything on your heart that you need to pray about, please either come see Brother James or me and Brother Joe. Brilliant.